0: Hey friend, welcome to She Said, She Said. Here on this podcast, I'm joining forces with a broad array of top-notch guests to share important life and career lessons, always with an eye toward insight, inspiration, and the drivers that help us build influence. I've spent three decades studying and learning the art of influence. Whether you're starting a business, raising money for a cause, advocating for a promotion or running your own household, understanding influence will increase your chances of success whatever your goals may be. Listening to She Said, She Said podcast may just be the smartest, most efficient investment you can make in you. Hey friend, welcome to the podcast. I am really excited about today's show. When I shared on Instagram and Facebook that Dr. Samantha Boardman was joining me today, you all were as excited as I am. Dr. Boardman, for those who don't know, is a clinical psychiatrist with a master's degree in applied positive psychology. She is the founder of positiveprescription.com and the author of the terrific new book, Everyday Vitality, Turning Stress into Strength. I've included a link in the show notes for this episode, episode 167, where you can get the book if you haven't already. I highly encourage you to do so because it is terrific. Our topic today is stress, how to think about it and how to manage it. Now, you likely already have strategies for coping with stress. Stress. But I promise you, Dr. Boardman will give you a few new things to think about as we think about stress management. In particular, I think you're going to love her approach to using vitality as a means to deal with the everyday stress that for many of us can be more challenging because it's always present. A couple of other interesting observations before we jump in. The first relates to our focus on influence that we've been talking about on the podcast this season and its relationship to stress. When we allow stress to drive us, we are less effective. That's likely stating the obvious, but for many of us, Learning to manage stress, anxiety, and worry is something that we really struggle with. And with so much to be stressed about these days, it's become a much more serious problem for many of us. So what's the connection with influence? Well, without a strategy to manage stress, Both the big stuff and the everyday annoyances can really, really add up, and it can impact how we feel, how we relate to others, our ability to think clearly, and ultimately how influential we can be. Dr. Boardman's approach is based on three components to build and sustain vitality, connection, challenging yourself, and contributing to something that is beyond you. She also emphasizes the importance of a growth mindset that we've talked about many times on this podcast, but she does it in a way that's really different. She kind of blows up this societal obsession with authenticity and just being yourself. If... Just being you prevents you from continuing to grow. In other words, she's suggesting that you be willing to embrace the un you or the aspirational you in the interest of personal growth. How great is that? Dr. Boardman's approach is based in science, but one of the things that's so interesting about her journey is her recognition that what she learned in medical school wasn't enough to effectively treat her patients. I'm going to let her tell you the story, but it's an interesting career pivot that helped her broaden and expand her perspective in a way that enables her to add more value to her patients. I think her advice will really resonate with you. Before we jump into the conversation, With Dr. Boardman, though, I want to say just a quick thank you to you for helping She Said, She Said podcast reach our most recent milestone 100,000 downloads last week. I am incredibly grateful to have you here, and I am so gratified that this content and these tremendous guests like Samantha Boardman are resonating with you and that you're finding this investment of your time valuable. So, thank you. And now my conversation with Dr. Samantha Boardman. Dr. Samantha Boardman, welcome to She Said, She Said. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you here. I am such a big fan of your book and of your work. I follow you on Instagram. You share incredible tips and wisdom. I wanna jump right into this though and talk about The theme of the book is around vitality. Let's talk about why that particular
1: focus as it relates to stress. What's the connection? Sure it was a word that I never heard in medical school I didn't you know really hear much of it even when I was studying positive psychology and somehow I think people associated vitality with aging with maybe you know dancing to the oldies or something but actually what is vitality and it's that positive sense of aliveness and energy that is really at the core I think of each day It's physical, it's psychological. And Andrew Solomon, who's a psychologist, had said once this quote really resonated and he said, the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's Mm -hmm. vitality. And I really wanted to make this book about what are those everyday ways we can build, cultivate our vitality and others.
0: Yeah, so you started this book, as I understand it, well before COVID, but your timing was just extraordinary <laughs> in having this book come out as we are all trying to, still trying to deal with the stress around not just COVID but life in general. Maybe talk a
1: little bit about when the idea for this book came about and 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 why. Well, the book, you know, it was sort of a long time in the coming. I think there's that old saying that everyone's got a book in them, and for the most part, that's where it should stay. So I hope that's not the case. (laughs) Not in your case, no. (laughs) But it took a while to sort of to to complete it because I, it was all based on sort of this transformation in my own career. I had gone to medical school and, you know, where you learn about everything that can go possibly wrong in the body. And then when I studied psychiatry and did my psychiatry residence, you study everything that can go wrong in the mind. And you ask about the patient's chief complaint, what's bothering them, you try to minimize symptoms, get them back to their baseline, you know, and you assess them for risk factors, um, uh, family history of mental illness, that type of thing. And I was super focused on what's wrong. And one day, I had been seeing a patient who didn't quite qualify for a clinical diagnosis of depression, but she was far from thriving. She was overwhelmed with kids and a partner and and lots of conflict. And I said, well, you know, how we could focus on minimizing the conflict at home with her husband, dealing with the stress of the kids, all these different sort of ways I was trying to maybe put out fires or give her the tools to do that. And one day she came into my office and said, Dr. Boardman, I sometimes just hate coming here. All we ever do is talk about what's wrong with me. We never talk about anything else. And she was right. I had been so fixated on symptoms, problems, you know, what was going wrong in her life, what was the matter with her rather than what matters. And it really kind of it was this inflection point for me was that I was so good at misery, but I didn't really know how to cultivate well-being and I knew and I'd studied for years pathogenesis which is the science and you know study of disease but not salutogenesis which is the creation of health And could I help patients find wellness within illness or, you know, people in general find strength within their everyday stress? And I ended up going back to school to study positive psychology, you know, where you learn about resilience and optimism and post-traumatic growth and all the opposite of what you study in medical school. And I think of myself more as like a positive psychiatrist. So this book was born out of that change of, of, of approach.
0: Yeah. Was it hard for you to make that shift? I've always had the impression that for the medical profession, the field of positive psychology is a little bit mm, woo woo, maybe not enough science based. Talk about how you, how you decided and you really embraced this concept. I mean, I, I personally love it, but I'm also not a doctor, but talk about the shift that you had to make mentally.
1: Yes, and it continues to be a shift. I, 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 you know, will say, but you know, it's when are you shifting from being a, an astronomer to an astrologer? Right. You know, in that in that way, and sort of like, oh, that's rainbows and unicorns and smiley faces, and you know, the credibility was I like, diminishing my credibility by embracing this sort of woo-woo, um, you know, pseudoscience and. So what I understood, though, and I was the most skeptical beforehand, you know, I, I really did not understand the point of, you know, what what positive psychology was until I had this wake up call. And he's really been around for a number of years before I before I came to it. And, you know, it was this strange Fascinating science that uh, a, a you know Dr. Seligman Martin Seligman had been researching ever since the late nineties, but there's research even before that about what is positive mental health. We know. You know he studied in the 60s alongside bf skinner the behaviorist he had studied learned helplessness Mm -hmm. but in the late 90s in his career he started thinking wait is there such a thing as learned optimism you know and isn't there more to health than just the absence of disease or illness and it was questions like that i realized i hadn't asked enough and i you know reimagining what positive mental health could look like rather than just trying to minimize problems you know decrease symptoms and so there is i think there remains a skepticism i actually teach uh, psychiatry residents who are in their fourth year and i think i get some rolled eyes uh, still but also then at what i teach i find the other the medical residents or the surgical residents there's real interest and i think especially for their own mental health they're curious about what You know what they can learn what they can do what are these interventions that might be helpful in their own lives so yes i still meet resistance and i think there are some rolled eyes but i do think it's becoming a little bit you know more integrated into regular sort of treatment of mental health, and psychiatrists are becoming more um, aware and they're recognizing it. For the um, World Psychiatric Organization, we have like a global um, group of psychiatrists we meet every week, I'm sorry, every month, and I, I run it. And we introduce a different speaker to talk about some other place of sort of positive psychiatry and intervention that they're practicing. So I'm optimistic. I can't say that we're there yet though. Yeah.
0: Maybe talk a bit about how you were working as a psychiatrist before you went back to get this additional advanced degree. Talk about how, when you came out with that additional field of study under your belt, how did that shift your psychiatric practice? Like, what were some of the specific things that really
1: changed for you? I mean, dramatically, I I would say is that, you know, instead of just, you know, one of the first things when you meet a patient for the very first time, what one would do in a typical clinical evaluation for anybody who's gone to the emergency room if you have stomach pain you know the question is what's wrong with you what you know oh my stomach hurts whatever i've got a headache whatever is the 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 problem i feel depressed i'm sad and those are incredibly the important pieces of information to have but then also now i will always ask you know what makes you feel good what are you looking forward to tell me something about yourself that you want me to know about yourself, you know, something that makes you, you. A a question I will always ask is, you know, tell me what are the, what do you value most? Tell me three things that you, that is meaningful to you. Like, what do you care most about? What do you stand for? And then ask them to talk about how they spend their time, you know, and even say, let's get specific as granular as we can. What did you do on Saturday? You know, what happened? and. It's often, well, gosh, I, you know, I, I was just watching TV all afternoon. I, you know, binge watched this show and then I ate a bucket of ice cream and then I, you know, went to bed. And what I try to do in treatment is to create more overlap between what they really care about, like what their values are, and the actions that they take. Because I think when we we feel like we're walking our walk, even when we're having bad days and we're, you know, overwhelmed with hassles and that game of walk-a-mole that can swallow us, that we are more resilient in that everyday way when we have this scaffolding, I think, of values that we are adhering to and embodying.
0: So you've kind of touched on um, a little bit about the building blocks related to daily resilience. I'd love for you to get into that a bit more deeply and share with the audience ways that we can go about building up that daily resilience. I know you also have sort of three buckets that you break uh, vitality down into so maybe let's get into the meat of this a bit more and give us some kind of tangible constructive ways
1: for how we can use this well first of all i started realizing that resilience was a word that gets thrown around all the time you know i was my vet told me my dog had to be more resilient and my hair is supposed to be more resilient with some new shampoo i'm using but so it sort of it it had that semantic saturation where it's a word we say so much it doesn't mean very much Mm. and The APA defines resilience as the ability to kind of bounce back, recover from something incredibly stressful, potentially life-threatening, harmful. And it turns out that actually resilience is the norm for most people at these sort of major life um, during from major life events, that people, even after 9-11, people um, recovered very quickly from it. There was an assumption in New York that that'd be post-traumatic stress disorder, people would be overwhelmed with anxiety and stress and even money earmarked for that, but actually people didn't need it. People tend to be more resilient to those major life events but it is um, the everyday resilience we're really, really lacking. And it might have to do with our lack of social support, but nobody brings you a casserole because you know you had a really bad commute, you know, right. and no one really wants to hear that story of like how awful like you know your flight was delayed. So maybe that might have something to do with it. But so how do you build this everyday resilience? And that's what this book's really about. And There were three main categories that you were mentioning that I I really try to dissect. And I think that those are the sort of wellsprings of vitality and everyday resilience. And the first one is connecting with others. Like how are you creating high quality connections in an everyday way with your family, with your partner, with your coworkers, with strangers even? Because the people who are able to say that they have high quality connections on a daily basis are again more resilient to these sort of daily hassles that can take such a toll on our mental health the second um sort of c i call it the three c's the second c would be are you challenging yourself do you feel positively challenged are there um Instances in your day where you feel like you're in flow, where you almost lose sense of time, where your skills meet the demands of, um, you know, whatever that you're doing. It might be at work. It might be working on a hobby, but where you have that positive sense of challenge. Mm -hmm. And then the third is, what are you contributing to? Where you feel like you are actively adding value in a meaningful way. And there are endless examples of how the probably the single best antidote for stress that we have is doing something for someone else. And maybe culturally, we're sort of at this moment where there's so much pressure, at least, to sort of self-immerse. And we right. sort of have green-lighted self-immersion. Like, you've got to go off and find yourself. I think I have a, a, there is a chapter um, or a section entitled You Can Stop Trying to Find Yourself <laughs> um, in in the book. but the idea that self-immersion or if you can you know that if you spend enough time thinking about your emotions what's going on and you isolate and you can eat pray love your way to it or you've got to go off and buy some well-being tool to make you feel better it's just not it's not true and if you can connect contribute and challenge yourself in a meaningful way and be deliberate about it Mm -hmm. i think that we can build vitality not just for ourselves but also for others
0: I love that. I mean, I love everything about that. I, I would love for you to dig in just a little deeper on how you think about a stab, like w- when you talk about meaningful connection, what do you mean by that? It's not just the way that we engage someone on the street and we say hello and
1: we move on. Talk about what that meaningful connection, what you're really talking about there. It's like this positivity resonance. Like when you give somebody your full attention and you are sort of hearing them, you're either having a meaningful conversation because not all social interactions as we know are created equal. I mean certainly, you know, we can talk about this too with with social media. Just passively right. liking something or, you know, thumbs upping something isn't the same as having a conversation face to face with somebody. Even Picking up the phone to have a synchronized experience with somebody rather than texting somebody, What's up? It's just, you know, when you're having, where you're forced to actually respond in real time in a real conversation, that's very different. But also giving somebody your full attention. There's research to show that having a sense of belonging, which is probably a fundamental human need, to do so, we need to have frequent positive interactions. With people we care about and who also care about us, Mm -hmm. so you know what does that look like? You know, and that is on a daily basis. It's even the experience of felt love. You know, when you just know somebody's got your back, and that you know that maybe even like your partner, they fill the car up with gas because they know you've got to go for a drive in the morning. Just those little, those little experiences of felt love and invisible support you know, give us the platform and like that sense of, of it's a resource that is a, a tailwind at our back. Thinking like when an opportunity presents itself to see it really as a positive challenge rather than a threat, we're much more likely to embrace that opportunity. Even having good friends that we support. There's a lot of great, um, research out there that shows that people who are in good marriages, it's because they have good friendships.
0: Yeah. And
1: those, th- how the role of friendships, you know, and having friendships, it really like a number of close ones outside of your, your marriage, it's just a way to not just help, help you navigate the bickering of maybe what's going on with your partner, but also those sources of strength. It's not just during the bad times, you know, it's wonderful to have friends there, but are they there for you in the good times? Are they there to help you see these opportunities? So I'd say in terms of those meaningful social interactions, it's a meaningful exchange of information. Mm-hmm. It's when you're with a um, it's something called active constructive responding and I'm sure, you know, most of your listeners do that. But when someone comes to us with some good news or a kid comes to you and says, "Guess what? I just got the lead in the play." We have a couple of responses, you know, we'd be like, "Really? That's great. And When are you going to have time to do your homework?" Or, you know, <laughs> "Well, guess what happened to me today?" You know, we probably wouldn't do that to a kid. But we're so quick to like rain on that parade, but just the three words, if you could just say, tell me more, you know, give me like you just that. You want to hear about it and you're giving them your full attention. Your phone is down. And I always say to like patients too: just when you're with others, don't have your phone even in a visible place, put it in your handbag, leave it in another room, giving that person the gift of your full attention will ensure that you have a much better in conversation and probably meaningful exchange with that other person. So I do think those it's very important to have meaningful interactions and especially sometimes we forget the value of that with the people we live with and to, you know, how can we create an environment, if it's in the car, put your phone away, give that person your full attention. If your partner's driving, don't be on your phone, then this is a great opportunity. And even more so maybe in that way that you're both facing forward, not looking at each other, that can be a little bit more stressful. So where are those opportunities that we're missing for meaningful, positive connections? And also in expressing gratitude, we often keep gratitude to ourselves. We think, Mm -hmm. ah, the person already knows, or if it's my coworker, it's going to be so awkward. What can I say? I don't have the words. They'll judge me for being, for not being able to express myself well enough. Well, we should stop fearing that because it seems not only will, we know from research people are so grateful to receive, you know, some communication of appreciation and, of gratitude from another because it's they don't know. You think they know and they don't. But to, to hear to somebody articulate it um, and to just say it out loud or to write it down is incredibly meaningful. And not only is it meaningful to them, but it is also meaningful to, to the person expressing it. And I think we sometimes just forget that or there's, again, I think culturally there's some pressure to make gratitude all about ourselves mm-hmm. a lot and to sort of, well, I'm grateful for my little life and I'm grateful and I'm hashtag blessed but actually, when we make gratitude other-oriented and outer-oriented, I think it's much more effective and actually more beneficial as well.
0: Oh, I love that so much. That's really that's really beautiful. I know people will have questions about one of the things that you said earlier about the... Uh, the self-care versus the other care, maybe dig into that a little bit more and help us uh, strike the right balance in terms of what that means. Because you're not saying self-care doesn't matter. You're just saying that we're all really obsessed with this idea of self-care. It's reinforced constantly. And yet the real benefit of helping other people like you're, you're talking about that. So maybe dig into that a bit more.
1: Sure. Well, I had a patient that might help sort of explain or elucidate this concept who really, she, you know, she said uh, it was New Year's and she wanted to find herself. And she'd gone to some sort of retreat where she was told that she needed to focus more on herself and to make herself a priority. And she took this very literally. And so she was changing her diet and had engaged in this exercise regimen and was, you know, regulating her sleep much more and creating these gratitude lists at night. But what ended up happening, though, was she said, well, I feel more well rested and like maybe I have more energy. But she was withdrawing from her friends and family. Her sister Mm -hmm. came to town, but it wasn't coordinating with sort of her her plans for self-care. So she didn't see her. She canceled plans to go to a friend's birthday party because it wasn't it didn't they didn't have like the juice diet she was on. You know, so there was a lot of ways it created for her avoidance and disconnection. And I mean, I think that the idea that when self care is interfering with our connections our meaningful connections with others, you know, or if it's becoming an on-ramp for avoidance or rumination, when we're sort of stuck in our own thoughts and we're going over and over the same thing over and over again, that that's when it can become problematic. And so I I do think to have that just to keep in mind, I mean, self-care is obviously very important and and super important for women. But not to use that as an on-ramp to isolate and as a green light to sort of pull away from your, your connections which are probably really the the lifeblood and like really the wellspring of well-being yeah that's
0: really that's really well said that's beautiful um, I was so intrigued by there was so much of the book but one thing in particular that jumped out at me I I both read your book and then I listened to the audio as I was out on the trail getting exercise and I, I loved it you've you have you've read it in your own voice which I always love that the authors that do that. But one of the themes that jumped out at me was this idea of authenticity and being willing to be the un you. It's so counter to everything we hear. And so I want you to talk about
1: that and illuminate my listeners with this concept because it's so smart. Well, you know, we hear so much um, from, I think, very well meaning people. And I, I've, I've had this, you know, people have given me this advice too is you've got to be yourself and be yourself at all times and be your authentic self. And for instance, somebody had told, um, given me this well-meaning piece of advice before I was about to give a talk to the American Psychiatric Association. And I was so anxious about it and nervous about public speaking at the time. And had I been myself, I would have like run off the stage and out the back door. And, (laughs) but because I think this idea of sort of be yourself assumes that yourself is your ideal self. And most of the time we're not our ideal selves. And so there's fascinating research out there that shows that when we are able to think of somebody that we admire and think, what would that person do? You know, what would Michelle Obama do in this moment? What what would Laura do in this moment? You know, how would she handle this? That it can actually lift us out of those self-immersed fears and, and feelings that might be really, you know, having us turn to more negative coping strategies and help us see... Um, and gain some perspective, and so I, I mean, I used to scribble then in the, the my notes for speeches, you know, BW, BW, and it was what would Barbara Walters do? Because mm-hmm. I'd once seen her get, you know, do this amazing talk and 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 be funny and be spontaneous. So to have sort of go to people in your mind that you admire, it's fa- you know another um, example of this is called psychological Halloweenism, and if people who are asked to behave like an eccentric poet become more creative at problem solving mm. they have um, like diver- divergent thinking is the measure of creativity in these studies but you know creativity is something that we often assume you know you're born with it or you're not I'm a creative person you know I'm a left brain person or I'm, I'm not and it turns out by asking people to channel or inhabit or imagine themselves into the mind of a creative person they become more creative. Even asking kids to, um, you know, dress up and even embody—I mean, maybe sometimes you know—dressing up can be really helpful when we dress the part. But having them put on the costume of a superhero they admire, they're more likely to persevere on kind of a boring task than they are to like turn to a fun game on a an iPad. So I think sometimes when we are channeling somebody we admire. Uh, and not being our authentic selves, we can get closer to the version of ourselves that we'd actually like to be.
0: I love that. I I also loved and was really struck by the fact that it feels like the way you describe this builds upon research by Carol Dweck, which came up with this concept of the growth mindset that I know you are very familiar with, and I think you talk about it in the book. But maybe expand on how those pieces fit together, because we do talk about the concept of mindset and embracing a growth mindset on this podcast. And I see this theme of being willing to be the un-you really directly aligning with this
1: concept of a growth mindset. Maybe talk a little bit about that. Right. Well, I think that, um, you know, the idea of being your true self or even finding this true you has to sort of it, it the presumption then is that there is some fixed kernel this true you this fixed self that is unchanging and if only you could do like eno- enough self reflection then you can find that true self And i think denying your possibility and the the reality that you are constantly changing we're all works in progress who i think mistakenly think that we are fully formed but so how can we change in the direction um, that we'd like to change and be a little bit more deliberate about that change and so when i tell people to be on you i'm not telling them to deny their values but just to think about sort of beyond their their immediate knee-jerk responses to something, to their, their reactive um, way that maybe somebody who's avoidant because you know they maybe they grew up around parents used to fight all the time and they would sort of want to get away from it and you know run away and hide in the bathroom. That maybe that was a very um, constructive and protective habit at the time, but maybe it's not the most you know constructive or protective habit at this point in their lives. So where are these opportunities though that we can sort of be on ourselves and actually expand our, you know, behavioral response to something that's stressing us out. And I think when you know we know how to certainly we know how we want to respond to something and our knee jerk response to something. But when you can be on you, you're like, okay, maybe I could do this a little differently, and to see beyond ourselves. And I, I found it to be incredibly helpful for patients to just have a different a, a way to step back from that immediate sort of self-immersion into, you know, their experience and to think, well, maybe there's a different pathway. And it sort of taps into this, what this old psychiatrist once said to me when I was in training and he said, Samantha, what do you think the purpose of therapy is? And I said, well, obviously it's to change, you know, your future. And he said, no, you're wrong invisible then to change your present he said no it's to change your past mm-hmm. the idea being that we get so entrenched and stuck in a story that we tell about mm-hmm. who we are we have the five minute version we have the 45 minute version we have the probably month-long version of that but when you start to see that there's different angles different truths and part of what you've that story you've been telling is true but maybe there are other ways to see it and I think when you can be on you, you're sort of tapping into that growth mindset, imagining other possibilities, and even also recognizing that other people also, there isn't some true self that they have either, that they have values that you respect but allowing other people to be on themselves you know allowing other people to change we know from high school students and studies when they realize other people change Mm -hmm. that they themselves like have less aggression towards maybe somebody who was once aggressive to them and i think allowing for the possibility for change in others we there's ellen langer who's at um harvard she's a, a i think the first tenured female professor in psychology and she'd said that sometimes people come to therapy after 40 or 50 years of marriage and they say i'm just finished you know with this and he always does this or she always does that and she said nobody's ever come to me and said i'm so sick of my plant or i'm so sick of my dog or i'm you know so sick of like something that you expect to change which you expect your child to grow and change you expect even your plant to grow and change but your partner, you have this assumption of, I know who they are. And that actually her advice always for for couples was don't predict what they're going to do. That's the same. Try to look every day for three things that are different about your partner. Mm -hmm. Prime yourself to notice change. And I, I think it's really good advice because not only, I think when you're seeing change in them, you can also see like better change in yourself.
0: Yeah. Oh, my gosh, I love that. That's amazing. Why do you think we have this tendency to fixate on uh, people can't change? I mean, I've, I've heard that my whole life that people are who they are, they really can't change. How did we how did we get to that point? And why are we so stuck on that concept?
1: I think there's two things i think there's almost a conceit that like oh i know that person even like you think of you know legally like a character witness that person would never do such a thing or that you know is a good person or a bad one and not really looking at the circumstances and i think we often um we we tend not to recognize the context of people's behavior you know we judge ourselves by our thoughts we judge others by what they do you know, if I see someone screaming at their kid, you know, I might assume, oh, that's just a bad mother. You know, but I scream at my kid, and well, you know, because I'm harried and hurried, and you know, she had just done so. The, the child isn't listening to me. So the the way this disconnect, and it's called car- correspondence bias, is that we don't um, we we don't sort of judge people in the same way we judge ourselves. Someone cuts me off in traffic; they're a jerk. Um, I cut someone off; I'm late. You know, so how do we sort of, I mean, I think there has to be some evolutionary explanation as to why that we do this and we can maybe assume friend or foe, you know, when we, when we meet anybody new, you know, can I eat it? Can I have sex with it? Will it kill me? Like we have these sort of fears (laughs) um, that maybe it was just a survival. And so if somebody behaved in a certain way, but the idea that we're, that we can judge people um, just by their, actions and behaviors and i think we have to always sort of pause and think what else could be going on i think that's the core of cognitive based therapy is to say well maybe that's the case but what are some other possible explanations for why that person did that thing and it's i think it helps um i think for all of us to gain perspective and not to be so quickly judgmental and assume that we have this knowledge and that we can generalize from one observable act to this person's behavior in the world. And that's the kind of person that they're good or bad. And I've got to say in my own life and in my own career, I've learned to really love being wrong um, and making assumptions sometimes about people who I, I didn't think would change. And even in my training, I had learned that people would be a certain way if they had you know, a certain type of mental illness. And I, I've loved being proven wrong, I had met patient years ago who had a, he had a severe problem with alcoholism and he was hospitalized a number of times. He was in the ICU with the DTs and it can be a really life-threatening withdrawal. And a couple of years ago, I bumped into him on the street and I honestly didn't think he would survive. And there he was with his family. I was like, hey, Dr. B. And it was just, you know, thriving, doing really well. And I think when we can also, you know, Give other people the, the respect and the um, the generosity of of allowing them and knowing that they'll change and you know hope that they will you know have that back for us as well. Can I think help us manage a lot of the conflicts we we have even with one another politically or otherwise?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, maybe let's talk a little bit about um, some of the uplift imposters that you talk about in the book. There are a lot of things that are served up as ways to deal with stress. And one of them that I especially liked because I'm a bit of a junkie myself, and that is productivity porn. <laughs> your, your, your terminology in the book. What is productivity porn? And how do we know when we've sort of crossed the line into it being sort of inefficient versus actually
1: moving us in the right direction. Uh, Productivity porn, you know, because I I was also one of those people who always was like more, 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 you know, the faster, like the darker the circles under my eyes, the prouder I I was. The longer the checklist. Yes. Yes. And, (laughs) you know, and I didn't trust anybody. I remember when I was in residency, there was this woman in my residency class and we would have to work all night all the time. And she just always looked really well rested. And I thought she must be really lazy. You know, what's going on with her? I mean, clearly (laughs) she's sleeping too much and there was something wrong with that. Meanwhile, not realizing how, I, I mean, I was probably you know my judgment was severely <laughs> somehow <laughs> compromised given my lack of sleep but the um the but productivity point i think how can i you know there are all these tools we we have to make us more efficient if i study harder if i work more i'll get more done but you know we know from research that that's not the case students who are studying for exams in college those who take time to take a break who to hang out with friends to even enjoy um, like doing something fun and to punctuate that, that then their, their, their retention of material, their learning is going to be more efficient. So I think when we're just trying to sort of stuff more and more into our heads and also just move from task to task, that we're actually undermining our ability to do well. An interesting study was done I mean, in a workplace, we're just asking people at the end of each day and they didn't know what they thought it was just a survey just to reflect upon what they had accomplished during that day for five minutes. It wasn't long just to think about what they had done versus those who just were, you know, going to their, ne- their next task. The ones who were able to just reflect upon what they had accomplished were less stressed out. They reported like just fewer physical aches and pains and they slept much better as well. And they felt like sort of more replenished and revitalized when they went in the next day. And it's such a minor intervention. So I think when we're just sort of always going from task to task and just dismissing the importance of doing something that feels meaningful that feels even fun or joyful that you know we dismiss as time wasted like i don't have time to go for a walk like that's just a waste of my time that actually you know i think we all have nature deficit disorder is just going outside taking 45 minutes breathing you know, not bringing our phones with us, or at least putting them away, even, you know, not listening to something. I mean, I love listening to your podcast, but I don't listen to it when I'm walking, because, you know, in a way, because it's so good to actually hear the sounds of trees, or, yeah. or you know, or birds or whatever that that is, is so important. And so the, the taking that time is so revitalizing. And I think, you know, I was always one of those people who just completely dismissed it. and even taking time to take a break, to sleep, to socialize, to take care of ourselves is really time well spent.
0: Yeah, I love that. I absolutely love that. Um, Let's talk a bit about um, this notion of the comparison trap that we sometimes fall into. Social media gets an especially bad rap because it's the thing that we're focused on right now, but the reality is we've always done this to one degree or another, right? It's not a new concept, but maybe talk a little bit about how we can avoid falling into that trap and also how we can help keep our kids, our teenage children
1: in particular, from falling into that trap. Yeah, I mean, I think it was Eleanor Roosevelt who had said social comparison is the thief of joy. That said, social comparison can, you know, being competitive, comparing ourselves sometimes, can actually be a, a, a motivator, a fuel for us to want to do better. If somebody is running that mile a little bit faster than you are it might kind of fuel you to you know and give you the motivation to practice a little bit more or train a little bit more. Uh, but I think with social media it's a completely different level of perfection that we're seeing and we know especially this does affect young women and now even girls as young as 10, 11, 12 we're seeing you know, upticks, I mean, in severe, it's almost like a hockey stick from when they started having phones and access to social media, seeing this increase in anxiety and depression. And this is very real. It's not, some people dismiss this, these findings saying, ah, oh, well, they're just more comfortable talking about depression and anxiety. It's not really real that, you know, this generation, Gen Z, they're having an easier time discussing it. They're asked about it much more and they, you know, are, just they're, they're, the stigma is not there as much. Well, that's not true, and we know from just emergency room visits, from suicide attempts, from documentation of self-injury. This is very, very real, and that it seems that girls are more affected by social comparison, and on social media, also they're more affected by FOMO. You know that there that fear of not belonging, of being left out, that they've missed out in some way. That's so crystal clear. I experience this with my patients sometimes just even seeing after a breakup, you know, in my generation, you like maybe knew somebody was dating somebody else, but you weren't seeing them on vacation now in Cancun with their new Victoria's Secret model, you know, or whatever Mm -hmm. that those types of experiences when you're the visual is incredibly, um, I think it's undermining of confidence for, for young girls that boys don't seem to be as deeply affected by their Aggression is much more physical, um, mm-hmm. and with girls, it can be much more relational. And so, even that's why that sort of bullying experience of you may maybe um, of of young girls, maybe somebody feeling left out, or in those relationships, keeping somebody in and you know keeping somebody else out. So it, apparently, it takes about I think it's fourteen seconds or so to feel badly about yourself um, leafing through Instagram. One thing to keep in mind, and I, you know, is that knowing that what you're looking at, and I think to remind our daughters of this, is what you're looking at is a just reminding that this is a curated version of somebody else's life. Reminding yourself that it's not real, telling your daughters to know, to reminding them that it's not real in any way, not forwarding or posting anything that could make somebody else feel bad in some way, just having those at least rules that you're living by. I think the experts in the field, Jonathan Haidt at NYU would tell you that young girls shouldn't have social media until high school, that it's just bad for their mental health. And you know, I think if anybody told us, you know, wait, your child spends 30 hours a week doing this one activity, would hope that'd be like, you know, masters in whatever that activity would be, but it's social media. That's all that they're doing in all of their free time. They're either doing school or they're there. And so what other activities could they have been doing or working on What social relationships, those real time interactions they could have been having with others because, instead of actually having those face-to-face conversations, everything is occurring like through their device. And even just learning those social skills, how to navigate a difficult time, even an argument with a friend, that when you have to actually respond in real time to that person, um, it's very different than when you're texting somebody back and you're given the space and time to think about it. And it's Sheryl Turkle who's written about how like sort of people's self-concept, young women's self-concept is defined by you know the amounts of likes they're receiving and it's mm-hmm. i share therefore i am you know and it's sort of that sense of it doesn't you know i my my identity rides and falls and rises and falls on people's response to what i've posted and you know just the emotional roller coaster of that experience and takes a toll i think especially on young women and what any of us can do, I think, and as parents, to minimize their exposure or just not let them be on there. And I'm, you know, not optimistic we're going to see any changes coming from these big companies. But um, I think it's something that almost parents have to get together and do because you can't have your child be the only one who's not on it, you know, because that's not fair. But parents will have to get together and maybe with schools say, okay, wait until eight, or, you know, we're we'll waiting until eighth grade, or um, I think having establishing some norms around. How young women are using social media.
0: You know, I had my friend Miriam Gonzalez Durantes on the podcast in episode 162 just a few weeks ago. She is the uh, founder of an organization called Inspiring Girls International, and they have launched a campaign on social media called This Little Girl is Me. And it's all about getting women to post their stories and their advice to share with not only girls, but really all people on social media in a really positive way. But what she's doing really is creating positive momentum by using these platforms in a way that we don't always think about. What about this idea of kind of taking your advice about giving back and not being so self-oriented, but instead thinking about what you're posting as a way to help other people what do you think about that
1: as a concept i love that and i mean i do think what she's doing like this little girl is me having these positive exemplars because i also often think we look at people we see as successful or accomplished and assume that they're so smart they just got it together and everything's been this sort of just beautiful uphill you know stroll for them and when we have exemplars and role models tell us this was really hard here and there was this huge bump in the road over there and i think being able to hear the ups and downs of their stories and the triumphs and the challenges and seeing our role models as very real people there's research that shows that children who know their their family's sort of life stories that they know where their grandparents met they know that parts that were hard they know parts that were less hard, not only are those kids less self-immersed and it's not all about them, but they also just have this sense of perspective and they're more resilient as a result of it. And to, I mean, on social media, yes, if you're sharing it that way, there's a fascinating study from a guy from MIT who was looking at people who performed cognitive reappraisal for others. And reappraisal is when, you know, you're, you you learn this in CBT where you think, ah, I just, you know, this is the worst thing that happened to me. I'm going to have a horrible day. I just spilled my coffee on me. Everything sucks. My life does. Everything's going to always, you know, I'm such a klutz. How did I do this? And somebody, when they reappraise that situation, will say like, you know, let's take some perspective here. Bummer. You can change, you know, get a different T-shirt, change. And um, like, what are you looking forward to next? And so they they sort of reframe something for you. Like, or... Right even people who were able to perform cognitive reappraisal during um, COVID, this is a study of over 27,000 people, those who were able to see some positive in it, or could I learn from this, were, um, they they reported that they were less stressed out and more resilient. So the study was looking at doing cognitive reappraisal for others Is someone texting a problem and then somebody reappraising it for them. Mm -hmm. Those who were reappraising for others, um, they were the ones providing reappraisal. They also learned better social emotional regulation themselves. So I think again, it gets that concept of when you are sort of doing something for somebody else, um, and you're sort of even sharing maybe your difficult story—not like your picture perfect one or that kind of Christmas card. Like, isn't our family just perfect? Hashtag blessed, great life. Hashtag amazing family. You know, but actually, the the, the you pull back the curtain, and I think it creates this social vaccine when you're able to inoculate others and just say like, wait a minute, things were really tough sometimes. And, um, and to share the struggles and what helped you and maybe with the perspective you've gained from it and what you've learned with it is a wonderful act of generosity. And maybe it is a great way to use social media for good.
0: Yeah, I love that. You talk about in the book, the, this concept of Velcro versus Teflon people. I'd love for you to dig into that concept a little bit. What do you mean by that?
1: Well, so a Velcro person would be, or somebody, I I don't think this is a fixed thing either. I think you can become much more Teflon (laughs) than Velcro, but that, that, you know, you just, when something negative happens, it sticks to you, right? It's like lint, it's not going anywhere. And so that's when, you know, there's some hassle and so many of the hassles in our lives are, are, you know, unavoidable. We they're beyond our control in any way. And then so that one thing happens and then something else does and it all just sticks to you and it accumulates and it adds up and it sort of reverberates. And that's where you sort of have that dark cloud following you all day and you know you're in a really bad mood. Sometimes you can't even remember why. Teflon, um, I think when you're a little more Teflon, you're just sort of things happen, but you're less affected by it. And stress, as we know, isn't necessarily stressful. It's our perception of stress so the same thing could happen to both you and me but we would perceive it to be totally stressful or not so i think that perception part is super key so teflon people i think have more scaffolding around them they have they are those three c's that they're building upon every day in their lives they're contributing they're connecting they're feeling positively challenged and that they can i think people who maybe have an inclination to be more velcro which i certainly do I'm certainly working on being more Teflon every day and sort of working towards that, okay, this happened, but I'm not going to let it follow me or define me or define my day or define my interaction with the next person I have. And I think we can be a little bit more deliberate about our Teflon qualities. Yeah, I love that. Um, Let's talk a bit about mental contrasting
0: um, that you talk about in the book. What is it, and talk about
1: how this helps. So, you know, I might be a positive psychiatrist, but as I said, I it, there's a lot of research to show that just positive thinking is really not helpful for any of us. You know, we can think positively about losing weight or we can think positively that we're going to go to the gym or meet, you know, the person of our dreams, but it might feel good even in the moment, but you know, over time it's pretty demoralizing when those dreams, you know, don't become a reality. So there's a wonderful um, psychologist at at NYU called Gabriel Ochingen, and she has looked at what this intention action gap is for many of us and how demoralizing it is when our intentions don't match our actions. So how can you close that intention action gap? And she has found it's through mental contrasting. And that's by identifying, you know, what you're wishing for and hoping for, but then also recognizing the obstacles and then finally having a plan to tackle those obstacles. So she created something called Whoop Goals, and that's W-O-O-P is the acronym. And the W stands for, okay, what's my wish? You know, I hope I use my phone less around my kids, whatever that is. And the first O is what would be the outcome of that? Well, it would be that I'd have feel more connected to them, would have better conversations. Then the second O is, OK, what's the obstacle? You know, it's my phone's always in my hand, it's on the table, whatever that is. And then, so then the P is, what is your plan? So when you can really deploy mental contrasting or create these whoop goals for yourself and be as specific as you can about what you wish for, you know, what the outcome would be, what the obstacle would be and what your plan would be, you're much more likely to achieve them and i think that's what her goal is is with mental count contrasting is you're not left feeling like a tumbleweed anymore being blown about by all these other factors that are really you know intercepting what you um what you hope for and what you're hoping to do and again to going back to that idea of when you're walking your walk you are more resilient and more teflon and uh, robert brooks has like brought these questions up and i think they're very valuable to ask is think about what words would you hope that your child, colleague, partner would use to describe you? Mm. And then ask yourself, what do you do on a regular basis to invite that person to describe you with those words? And then three, ask yourself, well, what words would they actually use to describe you? And four, ask yourself, what steps or actions could you take to close that gap and you know that they would so they would describe you in the words you would hope they would and i think that again speaks to that idea of you know what do you value what is valuable to you, recognizing your opportunity and ability to change, knowing that any change often is accompanied by setbacks and that's normal. Um, but that's what part of growth is. And I think having that growth mindset and knowing that you can be on you and bend in the direction that you hope you can bend in and you know, making sort of more overlap between the way you act and what you sort of, ha- how you hope to be described, I think is just a different way to think about kind of aligning your values values and your actions.
0: I love that. That's, that's amazing. I wonder how if there's an additional benefit to actually physically writing those things down. Because you know, there's some evidence to show that when we actually write down the goals that we want to achieve, we're much more likely to achieve them. Do you think the same is true as it relates to these, uh, to, to these mental
1: contrasting components as well? absolutely and actually she's shown with weight loss with saving money that it really helps to write them down and i I think that you know because you are you're articulating them and for some people it even going public with your goal having a friend making yourself accountable for that too or even having a a weekly check-in with yourself you know on sundays a state of the union like did i or didn't i here you know so you're not just sort of plotting forward and you know thinking like where did the time go you know, it's already the next month or, you know, the next week, why, why, um, am I not doing those things? And I think to be a little bit more generous and forgiving with ourselves as women, we're such perfectionists, you know, and we know with young women too, we're seeing perfectionism on the rise and just, we are maybe a little bit more forgiving and generous and more empathetic towards others who have challenges. And I think it's been wonderful having these celebrity, like exemplars showing, um, the, and, and sharing their, their, struggles but we're really still perfectionists when it comes to ourselves and we don't really you know give ourselves any leeway or we're not generous um with sort of allowing for those setbacks and just also expecting in a growth mindset way that that's part of the process
0: yeah do you see other differences related to gender gender both in your practice and as you think about this big concept of stress
1: yeah i mean i think men and and women do respond differently It's, it's certainly changing um but you know men tend to sort of respond to stress with fight or flight and women more with tend and befriend Mm -hmm. uh women report more stress um more physical and emotional symptoms because of stress men often turn to sort of unhealthy coping strategies might be alcohol um and but are sometimes more active as a result like they instead will you know hit the gym um, whereas women tend to talk more but we do have the benefit of those we we tend to tend and befriend meaning I think when we have those connections with others we'll talk to others and we that does release oxytocin it helps with stress is the theory behind it Um, but one thing to be really careful about and women do this more and it it actually is counterproductive is rumination Mm. when we ruminate with others it's like co ruminating with our good friends or with our children it's sort of asking somebody to you know if your child comes home or your partner comes home and you say uh oh, tell me what, what was that bad thing that happened and then you like like you rehash it over and over and over again but you're you're reliving it but you're not helping that person Or yourself come to some sort of understanding or even action that they could take as a result of it and so rumination is really i think an on-ramp to feeling more depressed and anxious and you know you're co-ruminating if you feel like wait didn't we have this conversation last week about your mother-in-law you know like that's that's sort of like okay okay i'm not helping you in this way And so when you can ask them to instead reconstrue it, and that is often done through what's called self-distancing, so it's not self-immersing, it's saying, thinking like, what would a fly on the wall say about this? Or, you know, what would you tell a friend who is in this exact same situation? What advice would you give them? Um, Because anything to sort of have them see this situation or whatever was stressful um, with some perspective, because what what this does is it gives them also like clarity around it, Um, it gives them closure, but it also gives them um, perspective about what actions they could take. So maybe next time they don't have to do it that way. So moving forward, you know, what advice would you give to somebody, you know, in this situation? we don't have with the the french word like les mots de l'escalier that constant like why didn't i say that when that person you know said that to me and you think about it as you get to the bottom of the stairs or you think about it the day after and you can't get that thought out of your head another really good cure for rumination is green spaces we know Mm. that it really disrupts um you know that that tendency to have that sort of ticker tape just going on and on and not be able to get out of our own heads
0: Yeah, such great advice. Such great advice. Okay, because influence is our topic um, this season on She Said, She Said podcast, and probably for longer than just the season, I have to say, because it's been extremely popular. How do you think about maybe the connection between our ability to regulate our emotions and sort of understand our emotions and this concept of being influential influence influence in in terms of getting what we want and achieving our goals and connecting with others how do you see this connection between our ability to control our stress and this idea of influence
1: i think when we're able to use our emotions as data that and almost as fuel rather than sort of swimming in them and that just being and so overwhelmed and just hardly being able to come up for air when we're able even negative emotions i I'm a big fan of um, and not um, just trying to sort of sweep them under the rug or move past them very quickly, really asking ourselves, like, what can I learn from this? What is this telling me? This is data. This is information that I can learn from. And I think when we use our emotions um, effectively like that, that we're able to Exert influence and feel like we have a sense of agency over Mm -hmm. the choices that we're making, and we're not feeling sort of windblown and that we're tumbleweeds, you know, sort of going like this way and that, and we're part of somebody else's agenda. You know, if you look at like the three sort of main wellsprings of well being, I think is having a sense of autonomy that you have some choice, some control, some say in what you're doing, and you're being deliberate about it. It's also having a sense of competence that you have skills, that you can rise to the challenge that you, you know, that, that somebody puts you know ahead of you. And then thirdly, it's a sense of relatedness. Like, do you experience love and are you loved? And I think that's really key um, to having influence because you have then I think that vitality and that fuel and that force behind you um, to be able to then be that agent and shape the life that you're living and also maybe make some other people's lives better. Influence has a lot to do with what you're paying attention to and I think when you have clarity of what you're looking at and we know moral outrage is something that always Hijacks our attention and attention is something we sort of throw around a lot. But you know, if we really want influence, I think we have to be super deliberate about our attention and what we're, you know, where we're generously deciding to sh- like shine it. And if we think of it as a flashlight, like, let's make sure our attention is going in the right place, because I think that will shape the way we can influence you know, our own lives and others.
0: Yeah, it's amazing, an amazing way to think about it. I really love that. OK, final question. Regrettably, because I have lots more, we could talk all day. Um, but one final question for you. Um, I ask each person who comes on this podcast for a single piece of advice a life hack, a mantra, maybe it could be something that you wish you could tell 24-year-old Samantha as she was just launching her career. What would yours be?
1: That would be, I think that there's going to be lots of zigzags. That plan that you have, it's going to change a lot and to embrace the off-roading. I love that.
0: The book is Everyday Vitality. Dr. Samantha Boardman, thank you so much for being here today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much,
1: Laura. I loved it. I loved the conversation.
0: Friends, to learn a bit more about this week's guest, Dr. Samantha Boardman, check out the show notes for this episode, episode 167. You'll also find a link to Dr. Boardman's terrific book, Everyday Vitality, Turning Stress into Strength, as well as a link to her website, positiveprescription.com. I hope her advice for creating a strategy to counter stress resonated as deeply with you as it did with me and that you found our conversation a helpful and good investment of your time today. Friend I am delighted that you joined us today and I'd love to hear what you thought of this or any of our She Said She Said podcast episodes. You can send me an email via the contact link on our website at SheSaidSheSaidPodcast.com or message me on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter. I would love to hear from you. Until next week, take care.